0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Thomas Kelly. Thomas is professor of philosophy at Princeton University, he specializes in epistemology. And as I suspect listeners will know, Thomas has written several influential essays on the epistemology of disagreement. Now, his new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled Bias, a Philosophical Study. Now, the concept of bias is familiar enough, partly because it's deployed frequently in many different contexts. For example, we talk about biased jurors, biased procedures, biased laws, biased decisions, as well as biased people. But we also talk about bias as a feature of certain frames of mind or habits, dispositions, or mental processes. Now, in a lot of these contexts, maybe most of them, bias is seen as a kind of failing or a bad-making feature of whatever it's ascribed to. Now, attributions of bias, hence, are often accusatory or at least a matter of negative assessment. Now although these phenomena are familiar, lots of questions remain. Consider, is bias a single thing? Is it always bad? Is bias always a kind of misleading? Can bias be eliminated? And so on. Now in his book, Bias, A Philosophical Study, Thomas Kelly addresses a broad range of these questions, maybe most of them, maybe all of them. He develops a norm-theoretic account of what bias is and then explores its implications, some of which are philosophically pretty surprising. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but we normally begin with our guest and we'll do the same here. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Really good. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. Um, you know, as I just said, uh, we, we begin the program with uh, the author saying a few things about himself. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure.
1: Um, I'm a native Midwesterner. In fact, I spent the first 22 years of my life in the Midwest, born and grew up in the Chicago area. And then I went to a college in Indiana at the University of Notre Dame. And that was very really important to me then as now. Notre Dame had an excellent philosophy department. And that was really where my love of philosophy first uh, ignited Notre Dame back way back in the last millennium, the 1990s. And uh, like a lot of things that turned out pretty well in my career, it was just dumb luck on my part. I certainly had, I didn't go there because I had a good philosophy department. I had no idea about this. In fact, as I remember, um, the fact that they had they a good football team loomed, you know, the really good football team, they won the national championship a couple years before I got there. That loomed much larger for me than that they had a good philosophy department. But as a matter of fact, I got really turned on to the subject there and worked with some excellent people. And they really supported me and helped me uh, you know, really progress. And I made it to graduate school at Harvard. And there too, I kind of benefited from having tremendously supportive uh, teachers. Uh, in fact, even though this is decades later, I dedicate this book uh, that we're about to talk about to the people who taught me philosophy, both at Notre Dame, my undergraduate institution, and Harvard, where I was fortunate. So, again, it was a dumb luck. I went to Harvard thinking I was going to do ethics and then got there, changed my mind. That's why I chose Harvard and ended up doing epistemology. But I ended up with this really excellent committee of uh, Robert, the late Robert Nozick. Uh, the late Derek Parfitt, and uh, Jim Pryor, who fortunately were with us. And each of those three people was really uh, wonderful to me in all sorts of ways. And in fact, there's another connection to this book uh, there, which is when I finished my dissertation, finally, uh, my committee, uh, Nozick, Parfitt, and Pryor, they said, look, we really liked this. And in fact, we think you should publish it as a book, as opposed to, you know, because they, the, they thought that, um, uh, you know, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts, so rather than do the usual thing of chopping it up into journal articles, uh, why don't you publish it as a book? And I wasn't used to not listening to them or going against their advice. But I decided uh, not to do this because I thought, look, there's this factor they're kind of overlooking, which is um, people like Nozick and Parfit, uh, they don't really have to worry. If they write a book, a philosophy book, uh, people, at least in philosophy, are going to read it. And uh, I do have this worry. I was a completely unknown graduate student. And hadn't published anything so far, and I'm like, who in the world would read this book by me? And I still think that's probably the, so. I did do the traditional thing, at least among analytic analytic philosophers, chop the thing up into journal articles and so on. But uh, it was a little bit uh, kind of strange to go against their advice, and I was kind of hesitant and so on. And I kind of consoled myself by thinking, look, someday I really will do this thing of uh, write a book. So I had this thought, and then another. Continue with that kind of train of thought. Uh, I started teaching at Princeton University, and I've been teaching here for the last 19 years. And uh, these thing, this thing kept happening. At least happened twice. Which is, and I assume this is completely standard. You want to come up for promotions, whether it's being promoted from uh, assistant professor to you know professor, with, associate professor with tenure, and then to full professor. Uh, one thing, you know, you always submit are these uh, statements about your future research projects and what right. you'll do if they give you tenure. And every time I came for a promotion at Princeton, I promised and described in great detail a certain book I was I was planning to write. And uh, it wasn't like – and so anyway, to catch to the chase, none of those books ever got written. And uh, <laughs> uh, Princeton, perhaps foolishly on their part, um, kept promoting me anyway. So I don't know what that says about the institution or about me. But in any case, it wasn't like I was... Uh, or about
2: whether anybody reads those statements. <laughs> right,
1: <exactly. laughs> um, and it not like I was ever lying or intentionally misleading anybody. I really did uh, intend to write these books, but for one reason or another, uh, I never did it. And so a few years ago, I was um, uh, sitting in my office, and I had this thought, look, uh, my whole career, uh, going back to graduate school, Either people have been telling me you should write a book or I've been uh, sincerely but falsely promising uh, my employer and my closest colleagues, I'm going to write this book. And here's a crazy idea. Uh, maybe I should write a book. And so I finally <laughs> actually succeeded in uh, following through and doing the thing. And that's why I get to be here on with you today.
2: Well, that's fantastic. Um, can I just a real just quick question about that sort of uh, origin story of the book, which is very compelling? Um was the was the dissertation connected to the topics of the, of, of of the book that, that you've just published, or was it, did it was it a, yeah. uh, orthogonal? No, not
1: at all. Uh, so all of these the dissertation was different. I mean, it was in epistemology in some broad sense. And these books I promised along the way were quite different. So, uh, those books, the books I promised to write, will never get written. I think the, the time for them has passed. And maybe I shouldn't be admitting to this on the air, but I think it's probably too late for Princeton to uh, claw back the promotions that were granted, partially on its basis on these, on these promises and so on.
2: Can I ask one one other question along these same lines before we, we get to talk about the book? Um, uh, is, is 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 what what if somebody were to ask you well I guess I am asking you like so you could have written a bunch of books you have a pretty wide um uh in your career you've written about a number of topics um not not uh, all of which are connected to bias although some of them are um what wh- what when you were in your office thinking maybe I should write a book did did bias just come out of nowhere as a, as a possible topic, or was it something that you had been thinking about or, um, uh, had an interest in independent of some of your, uh, uh some of the philosophical work and in, in more straightforward epistemology topics?
1: Excellent question. So I've long been interested in the topic and you mentioned some of my work in disagreement on disagreement, and that would come up in some context of there because of course, one reason why you might discount the views of somebody else is if you think they're biased and then of course you can ask whether it's whether that's a reasonable pending your part or not but when i wrote about disagreement i and you know for better or for worse the literature really went this way is i really was interested in this question about um, epistemic peers which is kind of this technical term because i thought yeah that's really what um uh when disagreement seems kind of pressing to me is when i'm thinking of the person i'm disagreeing with is either somebody who's a you know, my superior in some sense, or at least a peer. And if it's somebody I don't think of, so I think is okay, this person just doesn't know about, as much about this particular subject matter as I do, then the fact they hold a conflicting opinion doesn't matter so much. So there's this question of kind of, okay, what types of disagreements do we find intellectually threatening? Well, these peer disagreements seem kind of intellectually threatening, at least prima facie. And uh, who do I consider my, my peers? Well, people, if I think the person's more biased than I am, then whether rightly or wrongly, I think this, or reasonably or unreasonably, that would be a reason to kind of give their opinion less weight and think in rising my own views, perhaps in response to what they think. So I always had this note I always would mention well, you don't think of your epistemic peers as biased people, or at least people who are more biased than you are, or something like that. But that was kind of unsatisfying. So I was kind of set this aside right away at the beginning of this, talking about this disagreement topic. And I was kind of at the back of my mind, well, at some point you should really circle back and uh, talk about this notion of bias, which seems so important in these contexts of interpersonal disagreement, and many other contexts as well, certainly.
2: Well, fantastic. Um, so uh, let's talk about the book. Um, and... Uh, it seems um, it's good to start at the beginning, typically, and uh, I think we'll do that this time. Um, so, you know, the book opens with um, a discussion of what you call sort of conceptual fundamentals about bias. Um, and part of, you know, one of the things that emerges there um, is a very general understanding of bias before we get into the analysis Um but uh, one of the important uh, implications of that very general sort of treatment of bias is that bias is diverse. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that that diversity? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, and this relates to something you actually already mentioned when you ta- said a few uh, opening remarks about bias and and the book is the starting point of the book really is just this observation. And I take it this is this. There's a lot of controversial stuff in the book. I think this is relatively uncontroversial. Is if you pay attention to the way we talk about bias in ordinary contexts in everyday life. And I don't mean by we, philosophers or even academics, but just ordinary people, uh, it's really quite striking the diverse range of things that get described or evaluated as either biased or unbiased, right? And maybe the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people. Are in fact people, particular individuals. We say he's biased, she's biased about this issue. And especially in a special context is when we're thinking about people in certain social roles. So the biased judge or the biased uh, reporter, the biased news reporter, and so on. So people, groups of people. So just like we can talk about, you know, maybe you think uh, uh, Clarence Thomas or Sonia Sotomayor has a certain bias or is going to be biased about this issue. Similarly, we can talk about the group of people that is the Supreme Court and whether the Supreme Court has a certain bias. And then there's certain kinds of interesting questions that I got uh, very interested in about uh, how does bias at the level of the group depend on and relate to bias at the level of the individual, and can you have biased groups that have with all unbiased individuals and so on, these types of questions. So we've got people, groups of people, but then, as you said, lots of other things, right? So particularly interesting and important category for both uh, philosophers and psychologists, I think, our mental states, right? So we talk about biased perceptions and biased beliefs and biased opinions and biased judgments. And as you mentioned, you know, I I primarily work in epistemology and I'm right right about epistemology and topics at the intersection of epistemology and ethics and certain other areas of philosophy. And one thing I've written quite a bit about, uh, besides, uh, and along with disagreement is evidence and uh, certain foundational questions about evidence. And if you go to the, uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, there's an entry by me on evidence, which I need to update one of these days. Um, it's a little outdated, but hopefully it's something, still something valuable there for now. Um, and one thing I noticed is anything that can possibly play the role of evidence is also something that gets described as biased, right? So we talk about um, biased testimony or biased data, biased information, biased studies, biased research, biased samples, and on and on. So it was already connected to things I was interested in um, and connected to that last last group of things. uh, Generally, sources of information are putative information, as in Fox News has a conservative bias or MSNBC has a progressive bias or whatever. And it could go on and on, but uh, you get the point. There's an awful lot of things that we describe as bias and unbiased just in the course of everyday discourse. And it's, you can't, it's possible to overstate things. Uh, not everything is the kind of thing that can be biased or unbiased. So if I said to you, uh, Bob, you know, you've know, you never been in my office, but my uh, my office desk chair, my, my desk is biased. Uh, that doesn't seem to make any sense. You wouldn't know what I was saying. So it doesn't seem like desks can be the kind of things that are biased or unbiased. Uh, and that's true of many other things as well. But on the other hand, many things are very much the kinds of things that can be biased and unbiased. And moreover, it's not just that very different things, but even when you think in terms of kind of fundamental philosophical ontological categories, right? So um, on the one hand, we have no problem at all with um, kind of temporally extended processes, whether describing them as biased, whether it's cognitive processes or some kind of social process or um, the biased admissions process or the, a biased job search or something like this. But on the other hand, we're perfectly happy to attribute bias to lots of things that um, uh, aren't temporally extended processes, even you know, inanimate, inanimate objects in some cases, biased dice and biased coins and so on. And similarly, lots of these distinctions, which philosoph- venerable philosophical distinctions, which you know, go way back in philosophy, uh, universal, particular, abstract, concrete, uh, we're perfectly happy to, without any hesitation at all, to attribute bias to things on both sides of the line. Right. So we can talk about a particular episode of reasoning, like some psychological, some token psychological process that some particular individual engages in that begins at a certain moment in time and ends at another moment in time. And it's about that particular process of, you know, this concrete process of reasoning as biased. On the other hand, people also talk about um, universals or abstract types of reasoning, right? And to say, uh, yeah, that type of reasoning is a bi- that way of reasoning is a biased type of reasoning. Uh, where it's not something that happens at a particular place in time, because that type can be instantiated by many different people at many different places in times. So that's really the starting point of the book is just how liberal uh, we are, at least in our ordinary thought and talk about bias. And what should we make of that? What kind of, uh, what kind of order can we impose? Conceptual order can we impose upon it?
2: Good. And I take it that um, the answer that emerges uh, to the question you, you, you just formulated, what kind of order can we impose um, is maybe not all that much, right? So you wind up defending what you call a robust pluralism about bias. So um, I take it that um, that would that entails that any uh, any hope that one might have of sort of unifying all of these different sites and and lo, and foci of bias under some more general theory, or reducing them all to some more simple uh, 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 conception, that 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 that, that ambition um, uh, is is doomed to fail. Can you tell us a little bit about the pluralist uh, yeah, element good.
1: of that? So yeah, so the, the robust pluralism that you mentioned, so there's two aspects to it. There's the pluralism and the robustness. And the pluralism really is just, um, look, I mean, the starting point is this uncontroversial thing that, look, we at least talk this way. And then, of course, as always in philosophy, there's this question, uh, how seriously should we take, uh, and to what extent is the way we ordinarily talk, does that map onto reality? And you could imagine somebody saying that, look, um, the fact that we attribute bias all over the place is kind of, um, you know, that's kind of a loose speech or sloppy thought on our part, or maybe it's metaphorical, certain things are really biased, and when we t- apply it to other things, that's kind of metaphorical, not literally true, but the pluralism is, no, we really are picking up on something. And there's a real diverse collection of things that really do have the property bias, whatever that is. And so that's pluralism. Then there's this issue that you raise, and this is where the kind of robustness comes in about, um, look, even if you think lots of different things are biased, it could be that some of these are fundamental in some very strong sense. And I want to not push back on your question, but I do think that there are important, we often find important uh, dependency relations and relations of priority out there. So let me try to make this, this bit more concrete. So suppose we're thinking about um, a particular judge who reaches a decision by deliberating in a particular court case. And let's just suppose we say, look, the guy is a biased judge. So on this particular case, You know, the guy is a biased judge. and this particular occasion, he reasons in a biased way and arrives at a biased verdict. So maybe it's a, a criminal case and there's a biased a verdict that uh, the, the defendant is guilty, right? So here we've got three different things to which we're attributing bias. Uh, the judge himself, the person, the deliberative process, the biased process of reasoning, and the verdict that comes out the other end, the verdict that the guy's guilty. And then we can ask, look, um, assuming in the usual case, it's not a coincidence that all three of these things are biased, uh. What, what, what are the relationships here, right? Um, so for example, um, a plausible thought is, look, if it's a biased verdict, that must be because the process that led to it is a biased process or something like that. On the other hand, you might think, well, look, then we can ask, what makes the process um, biased? Uh, maybe it's characteristic of bias, how we define get a grip on a notion of a biased process is, um, oh, those are the processes that tend to lead to certain kinds of verdicts. Namely, biased verdicts, whether you're kind of making the, the verdict kind of explanatorily prior. So I do think in lots of cases you find these uh, explanatory relationships, but it's a good question how it goes. Um, so I think uh, philosophers, at least many of us, I'm no exception to this, are kind of suckers for these um, uh, explanatory priority type questions. Going back to uh, Socrates, you know, Plato and Socrates and the Euthyphro, uh, certain certain actions, are they pious because they're loved by the gods, or rather are they loved by the gods because of, um, they're pious? incidentally just parenthetically um when i talk to psychologists about stuff in the book uh, there's lots of questions that i get them very interested in and excited about this isn't one of them <laughs> I, i'm inclined to think this really is a kind of philosophical maybe this is our bias or my bias or something this is this really uh, these kinds of explanatory priority questions even among theoretically minded psychologists at least ones i talk to may be less interesting to them nevertheless i'm interested in them and sorry so a little digression there but um The uh, robustness, you could imagine, and you're absolutely right, I don't go for uh, a strongly reductionist view, which I think would be, I'm still kind of attracted to it in a certain kind of way, because it would be kind of really quite intellectually satisfying if it were true, but you could imagine somebody thinking, look, even though lots of things are biased, uh, one of these, or one type of thing, maybe it's biased processes or something, is really what's fundamental, And anything else that counts as biased is because it's how it's related to this more fundamental thing. So here's um, an analogy that I like to use that I think is helpful, at least for me, in terms of the possibilities here, is there's a pretty I think still pretty common view among philosophers about truth and the nature of truth that became pretty popular in the 20th century. And that view goes like this, Uh, look, um, we should be pluralists about truth in the following sense. Is lots of different things, and in fact, lots of different types of things belonging to even radically different categories can be true or false. So, for example, um, certain sentences in a natural language, like the, the English sentence "Snow is white," that has the property of being true. Uh, certain mental states, um, you know, my belief that snow is white, that that mental state can have the property of being true. Um, certain particular speech acts. So my saying on a particular occasion that snow is white, maybe that speech act has the property of being true. So that's kind of lots of different things can be true or false. But there's one thing that's very special or kind of privileged, namely propositions. And this is one reason why the notion of a proposition became so important to 20th century analytic philosophy, the view that uh, really the fundamentally true or false things are propositions, the proposition that snow is white, and anything else that has a property of being true has that because of the way it's related to some, the true proposition, right? So maybe the English sentence, snow is white, counts as true because it expresses a certain proposition. Uh, maybe my belief that snow is white is true is because it, it puts me into believing relation to a proposition. So that would be a view that's pluralistic in that lots of things count as true, but one of them is fundamental. And the analogous view about bias would be, aha, uh, lo- although lots of things are genuinely biased, one of these is fundamental, and then that's where really bi- that's how bias gets into the world, so to speak, in virtue of being related to this kind of thing. Anything else that's not that kind of thing is bias the bit's bias is because of its relation, right? And I argue I, this is an issue where I've kind of gone back and forth. Um, and I end up coming, coming out against that view. And so this is the robust pluralism is nothing is fundamental in every context. In different contexts, Although there are these dependence, relations of explanatory dependence, as we'd expect, it's not a coincidence that the judge is the property of being biased and his verdict is biased and the process is biased. Um, in different contexts, different things can be fundamental in the order of explanation. So I think often it is the process. So I think that, at least in the usual case, if it's a verdict like um, you know, guilty, I think in order to know whether it's a biased verdict you really do need to know about whether the process that gave rise to it or produced it is a biased process. So there, I think, in that kind of case, it's often the, the process which is fundamental, at least compared to the output of the process. Maybe then you want to say maybe there's even something more fundamental than the process. But in other cases, I think that um, even something that's an out, output of a process, um, we're prepared to count it as biased. And I think correctly so in some cases, Well, that's not a matter so much of the process that led to it, right? So contrast uh, the judge's verdict uh, that the person's guilty. There, I think you really do need to know something about the process in order to know whether it's biased or not. But suppose uh, this is a belief the judge has. um, A judge has uh, a belief with the following content. Um, The uh, black defendants who appear in my courtroom are more likely to be uh, to genuinely committed the crimes of which they're accused than the white defendants who appear in my courtroom. And let's assume that this is a false belief on the judge's part. I think at that point, we are, and I argue this is uh, correct and defensible, uh, we're prepared to count that belief as a biased belief in virtue of its content, even before we know anything about the process that led to it, right? Presumably, there is some cognitive process. And you can imagine a very funny story where, uh, no, it seems like a reasonable process and the judge's evidence was just very misleading on this point. So the process seems pretty impeccable. Impeccable, Nevertheless, if that's the content of the belief, the black defendants in my courtroom are more likely to be guilty of the crimes of which they're committed than the white defendants, and it's false. Uh, we're prepared in virtue of its content to count that as a biased belief. Unlike the verdict case, where the bear you know what's a different case, it's not the same judge. The the bare verdict, the guy's guilty, there it really does depend on the process. So um that's the robustness in the pluralism. Lots of different things are genuinely biased, and moreover, No, one of them is fundamental in every context. In different contexts, different things can be fundamental in the order of explanation.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
2: Perfect. That, uh, And for what it's worth, that sounds to me deeply compelling. <laughs> um, so, um, but there is a, um, uh, you know, even robust pluralism has, has its, uh, has its limits. So um, there is a, a, a core account that you give of what bias is Um uh, and so um, w- one of the things that that um, seems steady across all of the variations uh, across the, the, the sort of the spectrum of the pluralism is that what we're picking out when we're talking about bias, or at least what we're picking out when we're talking about it correctly, um, is, um, you know, something captured by what you call the norm theoretic account of what bias is. Uh, this is the view that says that... Um, bias involves a kind of systematic, um, deviation, uh, from relevant, from a relevant norm or standard of correctness. Um, can you spell out some of the the details of the norm theoretic view of what biases are? Sure. And so
1: here's an analogy that I found pretty, I found pretty useful in my experience in terms of kind of warming people up to the general way in which I'm thinking about things. So imagine that, uh, You and I right now are standing outside in a field and we're watching three archers, people with bow and arrow, shooting at a target at a distance. And so we've got these three archers and we're watching how often they hit the target. And we see one of the three archers is very skilled and consistently hits the target. And the other two are unskilled and they're typically missing. But there's an important difference among the two archers who characteristically miss. Uh, One of the two... Uh, it's completely unpredictable how they're going to miss, right? So he's as likely to miss high as low and as likely to miss to the right as to the left and so on. And on the other hand, the third archer characteristically misses low into the left. Maybe not every time, but often enough that if we're going to predict what's going to happen, oh, he's very likely to go low into the left. And it's important. Uh, Maybe there's a hitch in the person's shooting form that's kind of responsible for this. And it's important that even when that archer's not shooting, it's still true that he's disposed to miss low and to the left. Mm. And idea, let's try to think of bias, the biased person at first, at least, like the third archer who's disposed to miss the target in a certain direction, as opposed to the first archer who's reliably hitting the target or the second archer who's missing it, but is missing all over the place. And if we try to understand bias in terms of that analogy, then the following question comes up right away. So for the archers, there's kind of this clear standard of success, namely hitting the target. And then we can ask, look, um, what corresponds to hitting the target? What's analogous to hitting the target when we're talking about bias? And in my preferred framework, that comes to the question, which standard is it? Which norm, of we're talking about people, or which standard is it? Relative to which somebody might count as biased, because they're disposed to depart from that standard in a certain directed, in a certain direction, or certain directed way. And I think the answer to that question, which standard is at issue when we're talking about bias, is it's shifty. It depends. It varies from context to context. And in lots of cases, the relevant standard I think people have in mind when they're talking about bias is truth or accuracy. Right, So statisticians will say, look, there's two types of errors. There's a distinction among types of errors. There's random errors and systematic errors. Where intuitively, again, random error is uh, missing all over the map, and systematic error is missing in some direction, some patterned, predictable way. And here, even before we start thinking about people, we can think about, for example, uh, methods for forecasting the weather. So if we've got a weather forecasting method and... It keeps, and it's kind of, we're looking to it for predictions of what the daily high temperature is going to be, and we can imagine one weather forecasting method uh, that's like the second Archer, where, um, you know, sometimes it misses high, sometimes it misses low, it's kind of unpredictable, then we're going to say, look, um, that's an unbiased method, uh, even though it's unreliable, as opposed to a weather forecasting model that's consistently too high in its predictions. Then, because of the way it's inaccurate, we're going to say, not only is it unreliable, but it's a biased model, right? And in many contexts in which we're talking about bias, including in many cases where we're talking about human believers, I think that is the relevant standard that we have in mind when we're making attributions of bias is truth or accuracy. But I don't think truth or accuracy is the only standard we have in mind, even when we're talking about people. I think, especially when we're talking about people or agents more broadly, Often the relevant standard is something, some kind of practical norm. Uh, Maybe it's a norm of practical rationality. So if you think, as many economists and social scientists and others do, that the norm that governs rational action is something like maximize expected utility, then we can talk about certain kinds of practical biases or behavioral biases relative to that norm. The person who has a status quo bias, uh, what's true of them? They're disposed to depart from the norm, maximize, expect utility in the direction of the status quo, right? When they when they miss, they miss in a certain direction. Uh, the practical norm might be a moral norm, right? So suppose we think it's a genuine moral uh, norm of morality that uh, treat people with the respect to which they're entitled. So somebody who uh, repeatedly fail or frequently fails to do that, um, that um, they might not be biased, um, they might just be an unbiased jerk, right? they no matter who they're dealing with. They're thinking that, um, you know, not treating them with respect. Um, they're an equal opportunity offender, as it were. Uh, but suppose it's more like this. Um, they're more likely to violate this no- this respect norm with respect to blacks as opposed to whites, or women as opposed to men, or the old as opposed to the young, or vice versa for any of those. Then their failures, their deviations really do have the right kind of pattern, and it's appropriate to attribute to them a racist, sexist, or ageist bias, as the case may be, right? And one more final example of this, uh, I think in lots of cases, theoretical rationality or epistemic norms. So if you think it's a norm, proportion your beliefs to the evidence, then it might be that, uh, you know, I mentioned I'm a Notre Dame football fan, suppose, this isn't true actually, but um, I'm always overly optimistic. Given my evidence, I shouldn't be as confident they are going to win as I am. Uh, then um, I'm Deviating from this norm, proportion your beliefs to the evidence, but it's, in, it's not uh, random. It's not sometimes I'm too confident, sometimes I'm not confident enough. It has this pattern, so I count as a biased believer, as opposed to merely somebody who's imperfectly rational. Okay. So those are just a few examples of how I'm thinking about it. I don't claim any great novelty for this particular way of thinking about it, but one thing that I do in the book is suggest that when that kind of simple and in some ways familiar picture is developed and refined in the most plausible way it has certain interesting and radical implications so for example i argue that both um, morality and rationality sometimes can require us to be biased including in a pejorative sense of bias right. and i also suggest that thinking about bias in this way is fruitful so this is you know this is a theory of bias the phenomenon in the world itself as opposed to a theory of our practice of attributing it but I do think, when you think about bias in this way, it's fruitful and that it has certain kind of applications for our practices and helps us understand better our practices of attributing bias both to other people and to ourselves.
2: Right. So, um, b- before, I, w- I want to pick up on the, the the bias attribution stuff in a second. But before we move on, um, you know, I, I I came to the book, um, I guess, having the the range of ordinary thoughts that. Um, people maybe particularly philosophers might have about bias. And so the norm theoretic account um, uh, struck me as just the natural account that that bias has to be some kind of disposition to or systematic deviation from um, uh, a relevant norm. Um, just quickly, uh, you know uh, in the in the psychological or the more empirical literature on bias, are there competing, accounts of bias that don't have sort of uh norms at their center i'm just curious actually
1: yeah good so i mean this to be i mean i would actually regard it as an objection to what i'm doing if um uh, psychologists thought no you're talking about something else right right um so i think there are certain differences between uh my theory in particular individuals but i think at a high level of abstraction it is meant to capture um uh, what psychologists have in mind, in particular, in the um, you know Kahneman-Tversky paradigm, for example, where they really think are thinking here are the relevant norms, uh, you know, decision-theoretic norms, and so on, and making judgments of bias relative to those. Um, uh, so, but I mean, uh, not there are certain you know, certainly objections get raised this way of thinking about bias. I, I've you know heard got an earful about them already, and I'm I'm sure more will be um, coming. Um, but yeah, it is meant to capture um, a lot of the talk of our talk about bias, not just in um, ordinary life, but also the way it's being used in, say, psychology and so on.
2: Okay, that's good. So, um, uh, so on your view, then, uh, one of the the, 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 the a further feature of the view um, is that our attributions of bias are, in some basic sense, perspectival.
1: Um, could you explain that? Yeah, good. Uh, thanks. So, yeah, this is a, a key idea in the book, and so let's talk. Let's talk about politics. And so, <laughs> no problem. Right. We, we never have really met. I don't remember, but I assume you've got, uh, as we all do, lots of opinions about politics, about uh, which policies are good policies. And which politicians are at least, you know, relatively good leaders, and which ones are likely to lead us off the cliff if they got enough power, and so on. And don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot. We don't want to alienate any listeners, or you know, we don't, you and I don't want to get a fight, some kind of fight over the air. I don't, I don't know your political views, but um, I assume you've got these views about politics. And I'm also willing to guess that you've got at least some opinions about who's biased about politics. Uh, for example, maybe you think that Fox News has a conservative bias, or. MSNBC has a progressive bias, or you know, New York Times has certain biases in the way they cover certain issues. And it might be that you've got these opinions as well about particular individuals. So for example, maybe you think, again, as many of us do, that certain members of your extended family have certain uh, political biases or are biased about politics in certain ways. And then you've got to kind of negotiate these things and kind of steer clear in a certain kind of way at Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, right? So on the one hand, you know, you've got opinions about politics, and on the other hand, you've got these opinions about who's biased about politics and in what ways, or who, and who's at least relatively unbiased about politics. And maybe nobody's perfectly unbiased about politics, but some people, maybe more than others, are unbiased, manage to be unbiased. And the perspectival character bias attributions is just, uh, you know, first of all, it's just, look, um, these two kinds of opinions, opinions about politics and opinions about who's biased about politics, are not independent of one another either psychologically or rationally. So start with the psychology. So as a psychological matter, your political opinions will tend to influence your judgments about who's biased about politics and who isn't in predictable ways. right? So you've got very conservative kind of first-order political opinions that will make a, tend to make a difference to your judgments about who's biased about politics and in what ways than if you had very liberal um, political opinions. Uh, So that's kind of moving from your views about politics to your views about who's biased about politics. But of course, there's psychological influence in the other direction as well. So, you know, the guy who thinks that Fox News is an unbiased source of political information and so relies on it for views about information about politics or putative information about politics, that person is going to end up with, we'd expect, with quite different views about politics. Than the person who thinks Fox News is a severely biased source of political information and so doesn't listen to it and ignores it. Right? So at the level of psychology, there's a kind of reciprocal influence between, you know, for example, your political views and your views about political bias. And of course, ultimately, that psychology, it's the job of the psychologist to tell us exactly how that's working. I do make certain claims, but I think they are kind of very plausible and kind of well-grounded in experience and not contradicted by empirical findings or anything like that in any case, another aspect to this perspectival character of bias attributions that's ultimately more important for me is its rational aspect. So I think that there's a kind of parallelism between what's true at the psychological level and what's true at the rational level. And so I think there's certain kind of rational connections. Uh, which political views you hold will rationally constrain and rationally influence which views you end up holding about who's biased about politics and who's not, and again, the influence is a reciprocal one. Your kind of high-order judgments, your judgments about who's biased, will also ra- exert rational influence on your first-order judgments about the subject matter itself. In this case, politics. Right. So, in the same way, I think that the phenomenon of bias, the thing in the world, has a certain kind of structure. I also think that our judgments about bias have a certain kind of structure or internal logic that rationally connects them to our judgments about the world itself. And I argue that that fact has certain kinds of interesting implications, uh, for example, when it comes to disagreement, with, when you disagree with other people or other political parties or whatever. And so you in know, this picture, both psychologically and rationally, uh, disagreements about first-order questions, for example, about the merits of uh, alternative political policies, those kind of naturally bleed into disagreements about who's biased and who isn't, and in certain kinds of uh, cis-pattern disagreements, we're more or less forced—that is, kind of ra- not just psychologically, but kind of that might be true or not—but kind of rationally forced to see those uh, to see people on the other side as biased in their views. And in fact, I think in many cases of persistent disagreement, we're rationally committed to viewing folks on the other side as not only mistaken, which is kind of trivial, right? If I think, know, yeah, such and such is a good policy and you think it's a bad policy, of course, I'm kind of rationally committed to thinking you're wrong, at least insofar as I go on holding my view in the face of your disagreement. But I think beyond that, in certain kinds of cases of system, more systematic disagreement, we're rationally committed to thinking people on the other side uh, are not only mistaken, but they're also biased. And I think that happens even in cases where you don't really know any details about the other person's psychology. And this is a conclusion a lot of people kind of push back on, they give talks and so on, is I think, well, really, um, to know whether the person's biased, you've got to know what's going on inside their head. Um, Whereas I think that uh, to the extent you're sticking to your guns on certain issues and certain kinds of disagreements, there's a kind of rational compulsion to attribute bias to the other person uh, just from the nature of the disagreement itself even if you're not clear about you know, why they first came to hold these views or why they currently held those views. But, I should say um, I've been using the example of politics because I think that's kind of a vivid one and we picture certain kinds of biases and so on. Um, but the idea that I'm what I'm calling the perspectival character of bias attributions, which, of course, gets spelled out in greater detail in the book than I'm able to do here, but it has nothing to do with politics uh, in particular. It's supposed to be completely general. So to the extent it's right, uh, I'm right when I'm talking about this, it holds for the weather just as much as it holds for politics, right? So your beliefs about the weather influence both psychologically and rationally your beliefs about which weather forecasters and weather forecasting methods are biased and unbiased and vice versa. If you've got beliefs about uh, which weather forecasting methods are biased, those will make a difference to what it's rational for you to think about the weather itself.
2: Right. And just a quick question on that. So, and I guess this is um, the most natural thought in the the politics example or the example of persistent disagreement of of a complicated sort that involves, you know, a mixture of empirical and valuational claims and all the rest. But I take it that um, uh, it it maybe generalizes, um, namely that uh, attributions of bias sort of seem compelling to us because they're a kind of handy inference to the best explanation of the persistence of the disagreement or the systematicity of the error. Does that seem right? That does seem
1: right. And that's a really good point, really good way of putting it. It's not that there is a difference. So I said, um, whenever, so set aside bias for a moment, uh, whenever you disagree with somebody, uh, there's a certain kind of rational commitment as long as you retain your belief. And let's make it, you know, there's these funny cases of kind of pathological belief where uh, I believe this is true, but I don't reflectively endorse it. I think I'm being irrational at the very moment I'm holding the belief. Let's not make it a case like that. I believe P, uh, you believe not P. Uh, you know, in some sense, difficult to spell out perhaps, but as long as I believe that P, I'm kind of committed to thinking you're wrong about you know, in believing not P, right? Now, of course, it could be the right thing to do is once I learn that you think not P, I should give up my belief that P. But mm-hmm. Then you can do the epistemology of disagreement, what factors make a difference and so on. I've got endless patience for those kinds of questions and so on, but I'll move on from them now. Uh, so there's that. In that kind of case, that's like a matter of logic alone that um, uh, if P is true, not P is false, right? So it's so a kind of, yeah. I don't think, in the bias case, it's ever a matter of logic alone that, well, I think this set of things is true, and you think so. so suppose that when we talk about politics, again, I have no idea about your, your political views. Um, suppose that uh, it's pretty consistent that you know maybe we usually agree about politics, but whenever we do disagree, you're to my right, right, okay. alternatively to my left. Uh, at a certain point to the extent I retain my beliefs, I'm going to start to think, and again, it's very natural to do it in terms of a kind of inference best explanation model that, uh, yeah, um, Bob's biased, and I'm going to predict the next time we disagree, you're going to miss to my right rather than to my left sure. or you know, something else. But I think there is this difference. I don't think, um, and probably because you know, inference best explanation, I don't think it's a matter of logic. In the same way that um, you know, I could uh, we flip a coin and maybe it's an, at first it's an open question whether it's a biased coin or an unbiased coin, uh, I keep seeing it it comes up heads time after time or you know, some big number of trials. There's many more heads than tails and so on. I don't think it's ever, I'm ever inconsistent. I could think, no, it really is a fair coin. It's an unbiased coin. Uh, it just It's a long run of heads, and probably it'll turn around yeah. and end up 50-50 in the even longer run. Uh, I don't think it's ever in, logically inconsistent to do that. Nevertheless, at a certain point in time, I think it would be irrational to start believing or to keep <laughs> believing it's a fair coin that just happens to keep, you know, it's 50-50 chance, keeps happening to go one way rather than the other way. I think that's how it is in some of these um, uh, systematic disagreement cases. In principle, if you keep missing to my right in politics or keep missing to my left, I might think, look, um, it's not the case that the next time we disagree, he's any more likely to miss mm-hmm. to my right. It's just he's making a bunch of random mistakes, right? Uh, Right. But at a certain point of time, I think that's not the right thing to conclude. I think, uh, no, you'll attribute bias. And I do find it, although I don't emphasize this in the book, I think it's perceptive of your part, I do find an inference best explanation model here, um, a very natural one that to apply right. in this kind of case.
2: Well, great. Um, so the, the what we we're just talking about, the sort of the, the perspectival um, nature of, of these attributions, um, has an important implication you argue for um uh the bias blind spot the the, the our uncanny ability to see bias in others and not our, not the same biases in ourselves um can you tell us a little bit about the blind spot and and what the implications for it are for um uh, given the the perspectival nature of the attributions yeah great
1: so as you said uh the bias blind spot this is this um well documented and widespread tendency to For people to believe, I include myself in this, that uh, we're we're more objective and less biased than our peers. I'm not using peers in any very special sense, but just kind of people around us Mm -hmm. and so on. And so the the bias blind spot, the the blind spot metaphor is just like cars have blind spots. You can't see this particular area. Um, uh, Similarly, we have this blind spot when it comes to attributions of bias, namely ourselves. And we're relatively quick to judge other people as biased and very slow to judge that uh, we're biased. And you might think, look, um, uh, that's not uh, so surprising. I didn't need the psychologist to tell me this is true. But in fact, they've done all kinds of fascinating research on this. That, uh, yeah, really, uh, some of this, uh, seminal work in this area was done by my colleague in the psychology department here at Princeton, Emily Pronin. I got kind of really interested in this. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably my favorite bias. Um, in any case, uh, I certainly don't challenge any of the empirical findings of the psychologists. What I do offer in the book is a novel, what I take to be a novel explanation of the bias blind spot, one that to some extent is an alternative explanation to the hypotheses that the psychologists are um, throwing out, and they've suggested here. And basically my line about this is, once we get really clear about the norm-theoretic nature of bias and uh, the perspectival character bias attributions and how bias attributions work in general, how a person's views about the world influence both rationally and psychologically their judgments about bias, you'll see that the bias blind spot is exactly what we'd expect to happen because of the ways in which your views about the world, your first order views about the world kind of rationally and psychologically uh, influence and constrain your judgments about who's biased and who isn't, including yourself. And here, it looks like I'm kind of going out on a limb. Uh, the social psychologists have their own preferred explanations for this involving a certain kind of um, introspection illusion and this view they call a naive realism, which is somewhat different from what we philosophers, or how we philosophers use the term naive realism. And as I say, and I'm open to this, look, it's kind of um, it's plausible that uh, there's a lot of different factors going on, kind of multiple mechanisms that contribute to the bias balance, but So um, isn't it ultimately an empirical question what exactly is going on with human beings? And I agree with that, except there's an argument in the book to this uh, point that, look, um, a lot of these mechanisms psychologists are talking about, even if perhaps counterfactually, none of them were operative, we'd still expect people to, human beings, to in general be prone to this bias blind spot um, precisely because of the perspectival character bias attributions that... um, uh, you're, who, given that you're kind of making judgments about bias based on systematic departures from the truth, and we're talking about belief and so on, in that case, um, given that your own access to the truth is mediated by your own beliefs, just applying that basic framework, you get out that there will be an important first person versus third person asymmetry in the conditions under which we're in a position to identify biases in our own case and the conditions in which we're in a position to uh, identify bias in the case of other people, where it's not primarily a matter of introspection, as the psychologists think. I, mean, I think there's an important difference between um, the kinds of uh, the ways in which introspection can go wrong, something specific about introspection, and the kinds of systematic blind spots that come with. Making judgments from your own point of view using your own beliefs. And one way of appreciating this difference is, look, there's this asymmetry between uh, when I make judgments about my own biases and other people's biases, I'm inclined to think across a range of circumstances and so on, I'm less biased than other people, but there's this other asymmetry that comes up that seems you might think is closely related here, which is also kind of unsurprising, but I think is very significant here, which is when we make judgments about um, other people, right? So, setting ourselves to the side, uh, we're much more inclined to judge people who disagree with us as biased right. than people who agree with us, right? And there, when I'm thinking about other people, a story about introspection doesn't seem to have the same kind of application, because when it comes to other people, I'm no more in a position to introspect how other people, the people who agree with me, arrived at their views, but I'm in a position to introspect how people disagree with me arrived at their views. Nevertheless, I think using the perspectival character bias attributions, you can tell a compelling story about why we end up thinking people agree. We tend to uh, end up thinking people agree with us are less biased than people disagree with us, and then we can kind of turn around and apply that very story to our own case. So the thought is. Um, uh, I'm thinking. Look, it's no accident. You don't want two separate explanations of these two well-documented, well-documented by psychologists. Uh, you know, psychologists can give you lots and lots of evidence. If you had any doubt, it was if you ever doubt it was true. Both that um, we're inclined to think of ourselves as more objective than other people, and then when it comes to other people, we're inclined to think the people who agree with us, generally speaking, are more objective than people who disagree with us. I'm thinking we don't want two separate explanations of these well-documented facts. Uh, it's no that accident right that we got right. that combination rather than some other combination. Yeah. Proposal I make in the book is, um, let's maybe think about bias blind spot as something like a special case of the fact that I tend to see people who agree with me as less biased than people who disagree with me. In fact, it's kind of a limiting case because um, generally speaking, setting aside certain kind of pathological cases in which I'm alienated from my own current beliefs my agreement with my current self is probably the most per- perfect of all, right? Uh, so that's kind of a uh, proposal I make there. And again, that tends to push in the direction of not giving so much weight to introspection, given that we're really viewing the first person case as a special case of uh, disinclined to attribute bias, or at least less inclined to attribute bias, all us being equal to people who agree with me as opposed to people who disagree with me.
2: Great, great. So... Um, Tom, we're, 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 we're coming to, uh, the end of our, our conversation and, uh, I have got sort of two questions left on the agenda. Um, and, uh, let me just throw them both out there and, and, uh, uh and, and, let you navigate. Uh, one is a very specific question about introspection as we were just talking about, how it's not a good guide, uh, to detecting, our own biases. Um, so this, uh, you know, it picks up on uh, what we were just discussing, but I also wanted to, um, to ask about the third part of the book, uh, in particular, um, uh, th- the position that you defend that, it, that there's such a thing as biased knowing. So, uh, 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 pick up on either of those or both of them or, uh, uh, uh whatever seems best to okay. you. Well, let me um. Although let's talk about bias and knowing. Let me talk about introspection,
1: just because yeah. uh, what I just said. Uh, it seems like I, in, in certain contexts I am downplaying. Maybe maybe introspection isn't quite as important in producing this phenomenon. as Psychologists thought, but I do have ideas about introspection, uh, including some radical ones in the book that I kind of throw out there. And again, you know. So as you said, it's you know. Introspection, is generally agreed, isn't a good way of detecting our own biases, and this is an absolute uh, commonplace among the social psych- psychologists, and uh, I don't doubt that they're correct. I think the evidence is compelling, and it's intuitively plausible to begin with, but even once we grant that, look, I agree. Um, If you're wondering whether you're biased about something, saying, look, let me uh, introspect for a while and see whether it seems to me whether I'm biased or not, that's not a good way of doing it. right? If you are biased, it's not likely to show up. Uh, I think there is this interesting uh, philosophical question here, whether or not the psychologist would be interested in this, is, look, um, how uh, contingent is that, that introspection is an unreliable way of detecting bias? And one reason I find this question kind of interesting is it's another question where I completely changed my mind about it over the course of <laughs> writing the book. When I first started thinking about these issues, I thought, look, this is, you know, this discovery of empirical psychology, and uh, maybe we already knew it empirically, but it's a contingent matter. It's true that um, introspection turns out not to be reliable, but um, it could have been reliable, right? After all, introspection is reliable, reliable for all kinds of things. Uh, when it comes to telling whether um, you're sad or not, it seems like introspection is a reliable way of doing it. It's not perfect. Maybe there's some subtle cases where I'm sad, but I don't know by introspection. My therapist has told me or something. But generally speaking, it's pretty good when it comes to detecting sadness. And I was like, surely it could have been equally good or about as good when it comes to detecting bias, right? Um, evolution or uh, God, uh, or both could have given us a much better tool than in fact we were given here for this purpose, detecting whether we're biased. After all, we can easily imagine that uh, you know the, the ordinary five senses could have been much sharper than they are. Then we'd be picking up on all kinds of things that we're missing—certain smells that the dogs can pick up on that we don't pick up on. Introspection could have been like that with respect to bias. Uh, when bias is around, it pretty much tells us that it is. Uh, I came to doubt this, and so the view I end up defending in the book is that uh, really it's this quite deep fact, and it's no accident that introspection uh, turns out to be unreliable for this purpose. Uh, When I try to be provocative, maybe this is overstating things a bit, I say, even God couldn't have put us highly reliable detectors of our biases by way of introspection. Uh, I think we could have been better than we in fact are, but I don't think, so here's a more concrete comparison, I don't think we could have been as reliable when it comes to detecting bias as we in fact, are when it comes to detecting sadness. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is that? I think that, generally speaking, so again, think about the belief case, where it's characteristic of the biased believer to have formed beliefs that systematically depart from the truth about a certain topic in a certain direction. And, generally speaking, well, I mean, we don't have our access to the truth is mediated by our own beliefs. So I think generally speaking, it's no accident that uh, we won't be good at picking up on recognizing from the inside the kinds of systematic departures from the truth that are characteristic of uh, the biased believer. And so the uh, introspection is, there are some really substantial limits here, I think. I don't want to overstate it. I think certain kinds of biases Uh, introspection could have been better at identifying, right? Take wishful thinking. That's a paradigmatic bias. And wishful thinking is, to a first approximation, something like uh, you're missing the truth. You tend to miss the truth in the direction of your desires, right? So it's non-random. It's kind of in direction of your desires, your preferences. And I could imagine that, you know, we're so constituted so that when uh, my desires or preferences start getting involved in my theoretical reasoning, this kind of illicit way, a little bell goes off, right, or something like this. Or some a siren goes, a little siren in my head, or some light starts flashing or something. Then I know by introspection, okay. But I think that the thought that introspection could have been general, could have been even generally reliable when it comes to picking up bias, depends on a certain way of thinking about bias, where all bias is to be understood on the model of wishful thinking. And I think, although wishful thinking is a kind of paradigmatic bias, I think there are lots of other biases, including some paradigmatic ones. That aren't, that are kind of relevantly different. So, certain kinds of biases that depend on the way in which we're embedded in the world, the way we're kind of embedded in our social environments, um, there uh, we don't really have access, the kind of access we need in order for introspection to be reliable at detecting those kinds of biases. And I think that same point, the arguments I give in the book, to the extent they're any good at all, would still hold even if reliable, even if introspection was. Much sharper than it actually is in practice.
2: Um, That's very interesting. Um, so, uh, can I d- just a quick follow sure. up? <laughs> yes, sure. um, so, uh, I take it that um, your view is, you know, is that introspection is is a is a a, a skill or a, 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 a capacity that can be more or less well trained? Am I right about that? Uh, it is. I mean. I'm kind of reluctant
1: to to commit myself to. I mean, introspection is so difficult to think about. I'm reluctant <laughs> to commit myself to some particular model of it, but maybe I am committed by certain things I say. But but let's
2: run with it. All right. So I'm just wondering if you. So yeah. And again, here I'm just thinking of cases in which. Um, you know, uh, here's a real weird uh, sort of uh, analogy. So, um, you know, we, we're in, in informal logic, it looks as if the fallacy fallacy has this peculiar feature to it. It's like you can commit it only in virtue of your command of the va- you know, of, of the conceptual inventory of fallacies, Good. Good. <laughs> right? Okay. So I'm just wondering if there isn't something
1: similar here. The fallacy the fallacy, here. fallacy is a fallacy of thinking something's a fallacy when it's actually not.
2: That that that's right, or of of calling out perfectly good reasoning, but uh, by using the name of a fallacy and misidentifying it, um, so. Uh, I'm just wondering if you think that there wouldn't be cases in which the tools that can better inform or better tune uh, our introspection, certain conceptual tools, even the vocabulary of bias, knowing that there are things like wishful thinking and confirmation bias and right side bias and all the rest, right? I'm just wondering if you think there aren't cases in which having a command of that conceptual uh, um, idiom... um, uh, might foul our attempts to detect our own biases by way of introspection because it, it, because having a command of that vocabulary enables us to rationalize in certain ways we wouldn't be able to.
1: Yeah, excellent suggestion.
2: And it's fascinating
1: the extent to it. I mean, I think the point even generalizes is uh, the ways in which um, uh, intelligence and uh, learning more about the world can actually make them more biased, right? <laughs> right. They find that uh, highly educated people Um, I mean, I have to be careful exactly what the facts here are, but highly educated people when given what looks like pretty clear counter-evidence against one of their beliefs, um, are actually in some ways better at kind of explaining it away, right? So they yeah. end up as opposed to people who don't have a certain kind of conceptual sophistication perhaps. And so just kind of give up their beliefs, which is maybe or, or weaken weaken them at least, which is maybe what they should be doing, rather than digging in their heels. But I think in general, certain kinds of conceptual sophistic gaining certain kinds of conceptual sophistication, gaining more information can increase bias. And I think the thing you're talking about is a very plausible, as a, a special, special case of this kind of phenomenon.
2: Right, there's um, uh, some reason to think that um, acquiring certain pieces of political information, and by there I mean information in the success sense, like you're getting, you know, <laughs> more rational beliefs about political stuff. Uh, but it looks as if there are certain reasons to think that gaining uh, gaining political information uh, makes you a more biased voter. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah, great. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to give you the chance, though you know, we, we at the you know the, the last minute or two, um, can you just say one one or two quick things about the, the what what I thought at least for the epistemologist who'll be reading the book, um, uh, I thought was a real uh, a, a provocative uh, a discussion um, that uh, biased knowledge is possible. Do you have a the, the sort of quick the quick and dirty version of that yeah. that you can just announce? Good, quick and dirty is.
1: Natural thought, so knowledge seems like this cognitively good state. Bias, at least in the pejorative sense, seems like this, cog, you know, cognitively bad thing. Uh, how are these related? Natural thought, um, being biased, at least, uh, at least when the bias is sufficiently strong, excludes knowledge, right? So, the the biased person, the, the severely biased person, uh, doesn't know, even if, even if they turn out to be right, right? So there's certain sort of kind of incompatibility. I push back on this and argue that. Um, Look, even in cases where the bias is so strong that um, it kind of guarantees the person would believe what they end up believing, uh, no matter what the evidence was like and so on, uh, it might still be knowledge. And I give arguments for this. Then there's a question, well, who cares? Does this have any significance? And I argue, yeah, if I'm right that there is such a phenomenon of bias knowing, that has certain implications for certain proposed norms of philosophical methodology that are supposed to guard against philosophical inquiry, against biases. Those norms are called into question. And I also think it has right. certain interesting implications for discussions of radical skepticism. Anyway, right. That's just a little teaser. I believe there's been <laughs> bias knowing, and I think it's philosophically significant.
2: Well, that's fantastic. Um, Thomas, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining me today uh, on the New Books in Philosophy podcast to talk about your book. It's been really, really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Um, and we should I, I think uh, I really thank, enjoy
1: doing it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's f- fantastic. Um, we should uh, uh, thank our listeners. Uh, so, thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us for this discussion. I've been talking with uh, Thomas Kelly. His new book, which is just published by Oxford University Press, uh, which I highly recommend, is titled "Bias: A Philosophical Study." Um, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.